Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about data transformation with Joel Holdbrooks, the creator of Meander. Welcome to the show, Joel. Hi, Daniel. Hey. So firstly, could you tell us a little bit about what Meander is and where it came from and why it exists? Yeah, so Meander is a library that's aimed at making data transformation as transparent as possible. And by transparent, what I mean is that given some input, you have a representation of that input that more or less looks like the thing that's going to manipulate. And then you have some output that looks more or less like you would want it to be output, the shape of the data. So the goal is to have a style of programming that emphasizes uh, data manipulation via literals that sort of look like closure literals. And the motivation for this came from just having a lot of experience programming enclosure, of course, um, observing the behavior of other people programming uh, closure, and just kind of recognizing that there are often several ways of doing the same thing that could be expressed, you know, in my opinion, more clearly with pattern matching and more directly with pattern matching. So I'm going to give an example of get in, maybe looking for some particular items inside a, you know, a collection that fit a certain shape, pulling those out, and then maybe either putting them back in to a new a new data structure or maybe even the same one. But just being able to take those things and go, okay, you know, what are the common things that we're doing and how much of that can we put into a pattern matching format and then also um, a pattern substitution format, which is um, the sort of the other side of, of the construction thing. So you have, you know, and stop me if, I, if I'm kind of going in too many directions at once here, but... You, know, you, have, you have pattern matching for matching on a on a data structure, pulling things out, and then you have a substitution, which is you know constructing a value. So one side deconstructs, the other side constructs. And part of this motivation for for doing this came from you know some realization too that as I program you know enclosure, I'm not actually getting better at being able to take some arbitrary source code and understand it right without having to read it. And that's kind of frustrating because, you know, oftentimes the things that people are are doing when they're manipulating uh, data structures are are very common things. They're using the same tools in very similar ways behaviorally. And so there's this frustrating feeling that I actually have to read code to understand what it's doing. And I can't just sort of, you know, have a representation of what it's doing that is kind of transparent in terms of you know, given some notation for describing the thing, I can quickly see, oh, this, you know, we're trying to get some data out of this map here. It, you know, it has this shape. And, you know, then I'm going to take all those, you know, bindings, those things that I've collected, and I'm going to put it in this new shape. So those are kind of like the big themes, well, the biggest theme, which is this whole idea that, you know, we could benefit greatly. I, my, in my opinion, we could benefit greatly from having a, a syntax for you know transparently extracting and constructing data that looks much like uh, the literal syntax, right? Because you can give anyone a data literal enclosure, and they're going to be mm-hmm. no questions asked right off the bat. They'll be like, "Oh yeah, you know that's a map, it's a set, that's a vector, it's a list, whatever." But you know, given some arbitrary code, right? We can't do the same thing. We have to actually think about the semantics of the thing. We have to reify these these names like get, get in, associ, associ in. And we have to think about in our minds kind of like how is this data being pulled apart and how is this data being constructed? And even for trivial things, you know, it's it's sort of a kind of a lot of work, right? Mm. So that's sort of the motivation there, right? That's sort of the philosophy of where this came from. We had been doing a lot of when I this is several years ago, but at you know, at work we were doing a lot of um mapping. So we would get these you know, giant payloads of data. And we'd often want to query things out of them and then put them in some other canonical format. And, you know, in the evening at home, uh, I was working on um, small step interpreters for like Lambda Calculus exploring. Can you just expand that out a little bit? Sure, sure. You're not familiar with that term? The, which one? Small step? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, interpreters? Or... Yes, well, both, I guess. Okay. But small step in particular. Yeah. So, uh, s- small step interpreters. Um, I-, I guess I was more or less talking about this space called operational semantics. I came to know it by way of Matt Might. Uh, he's got some articles 
if you just search mm-hmm. for Matt Might, um, he's done a lot of work in the space. And you know, the whole idea is that in operational semantics, you usually have a definition of how an interpreter is going to run. So usually these things are going to be targeting the Lambda calculus, which is sort of this almost like a functional programming language. I'm sure the listeners can go and look it up. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that like, it might be actually more illustrative if, if I contrast it with like a big step. So if you think about read, eval, print, loop, these would be the sort of four states of, of a REPL, right? Yeah. But these are the, there's a big step between read, eval, print, and loop. So what goes inside read, what goes inside uh, eval or print or loop, right? Those are kind of, you know, they're sort of opaque, with small step interpreters or in operational semantics, you take something like eval and you have a very methodical, like piecewise definition of how do I move from one place to another. So given any state that my interpreter is in, there's exactly one state that my interpreter can move to. So it's it's like a state machine. And it usually has some kind of a, a symbolic representation for it. So if you look up, there's different types of machines, abstract machines, there's CEK uh, CESK, uh, SECD. There's a bunch of different ones that you can learn about, and um, you know the, the the goal of these the, having these abstract machines is to give you this ability to sort of you know do some kind of reasoning and understand you know the execution of uh, these programming languages and, and uh, you know in a much more sort of a clear way in a more detail oriented way, but not necessarily a mathematical way. So they're they're highly symbolic and. At the time, I was so I was using CoreMatch to kind of you know go through the process of constructing these abstract machines, and I kept coming back to like this sort of like frustrating feeling that there wasn't a syntactical way of of drawing these uh, machines. Like I would look at the paper or the article, and there would be this mathematical definition that was totally clear in symbols, but I couldn't just take those symbols and move them from the paper to my editor. Um, and then to just be able to execute them. And core match, the syntax for it, you know, you have to, to draw the brackets and then I think you have to wrap it with like round brackets and tell it, hey, this is a, you know, I expect this thing to be a seek, which I kind of felt was awkward. And, you know, I know that I think there's some, there's like a, an outstanding request somewhere for having there be a syntactic matcher. Right. But, I, you know, David Nolan, the guy that, you know, wrote, core match or at least wrote a big portion of it i think he's a fairly busy guy and you know jumping in and trying to to contribute to that looked a little daunting to me and you know and also i kind of wanted to learn so i thought you know i'm gonna try and build my own you know pattern matcher with with the things that i want as you do yeah <laughs> yeah and then and then the other side of it too which was the the thing that i i, I hadn't seen very much of which was the right hand side so a lot of uh pattern matchers yeah yeah a lot of pattern matchers what they that they do is they say okay you know i'm going to allow you to sort of pull this value apart by pattern matching on it and and pulling out the pieces right and then on the right hand side you've got code where you, you can like do whatever it's the wild west you can do whatever you want but I thought it would be really cool if you could take the same syntax that you're using for for pattern matching and put it on the right hand side of a, of one of these um, rules. And instead of executing code, right, you're you're executing or so you're doing a, a substitution using the same syntax. So, you know, I thought that would be kind of interesting because this is sort of what you see in in mathematics, right? You you might have some thing that says, oh, you know, if I see f of a vector of x is then my transform of this is going to be will make me a, a new vector where I have f of you know f applied to all the x's in the vector type of thing. Yeah, and there's like the dot dot that there's like that ellipsis notation and everything looks really clean and it's really you know once you know the 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 syntax of of the maths or, or the symbols or, or whatever then it's like really transparent. You're like oh, okay this is easy, but <laughs> but what isn't obvious a lot of times well how do I take that and you know put it on the computer? <laughs> it's you know, so my hope was is that I could sort of like steal this idea and bring it into closure because you know you've got macros and you can you have a lot of control over yeah uh, so you could build a little compiler for these things so that was a big motivating thing there. I think it might be helpful to, for people to sort of place meander by understanding the you know its alternatives or what what else is in the space. So we already talked a little bit about core match, but there's also core logic and Spectre which are sort of 
similar-ish or they, they you know, might sound like they have overlapping goals. So can you talk a little bit about those two and or, and the core match as well, if you like, you know, where the different... Core match is probably the easiest one. And, you know, the main difference between Meander's pattern matcher and, and core match's pattern matcher is that, well, actually there's several differences, but the main one is that Meander's pattern matcher is is a, a syntactical pattern matcher. And, and what I mean by that is that when you draw, um, you know, a vector uh, or a list, right, or a map or a set, it literally means those things. So, you know, with Meander's Pattern Matcher, it doesn't do... Like, if you say, uh, you know, I want to match the list ABC, it will literally match ABC, the list ABC. And if you try to match it against the vector, it won't match it. Even if it's a vector ABC, it won't match it. Mm-hmm. And the rationale for that is that it means something, right? When you draw a vector, it often means something. When you draw a list, it often means something. So one of the goals here is to be clear, right? It's it's to be transparent. So what I don't want is I don't want the kind of semantics that say, well, you know, you draw a vector and, you know, I'll also include in lists in that, right? Mm-hmm. Because then it kind of, now when I'm reading that, I have to think of that, those semantics. So I would rather just say, look, you know, a list means a list, a vector means a vector, right? Or I mean, a seek, let's just, not a list, a seek. Yeah. So a seek, a seek like thing. And then on top of that, you know, you could build some conveniences. Like we have something called uh, a pattern matching operator, which is sort of like a, a macro for pattern matching syntax, if you will, but that's called seekable. And uh, seekable just says literally that, like if I'm going to pattern match on something that's seekable, and then that way you can be a little bit more loose. But the same the same sort of restrictions would apply, though, to the number of items in the list or the vector or whatever it is that's seekable that you're matching on. Right. Some other things that we have in, in Meander that uh, are not um, in core match are uh, things like logic variables. So if you have a variable, we uh, logic variable, which is usually a symbol with a question mark in front of it, just kind of like, a, like you would have in... Um, like data log, mm-hmm. you know, datomic data log, yep. uh, or data script. Just like data log, it means the same thing everywhere. So if I say, you know, I want to match a vector with the logic variable x and the logic variable x, it's going to match something like one, you know, a vector of one, one, two, two, etc. So we have that. So that, that way you can do sort of re- like relational kinds of things. You could do joins. So we have those. We have a, this thing called a memory variable, which allows you to kind of collect. Values, and this is sort of useful for uh, doing regular expression type of things where you have a zero or more, n or more, and usually you're trying to aggregate things um, or, you know, you know, put them in some pile, right? If I see yeah. even numbers, stick them here. If I see odd numbers, stick them here, that kind of thing, which you might do with, you know, something like a, a split width or something like that. So those are distinctly different types of things that we have, whereas I think, you know, core match just has like a, a kind of standard variable. And, you know, this isn't to, to put core match down, but it does have some, the, the variables in core match are, are slightly tragic in that if you, if you write, uh, you know, I want to pattern match on a vector and you give it X, like you say my variable, I'm going to bind, I want to bind X or something. If you have X defined elsewhere in like the file or in scope, it's going to kind of like stick it in there. Uh. you might wind up yeah yeah so we have an explicit way of doing this in in meander's pattern matcher you can use the tilde you know closures a tilde Mm. and that that tells the pattern matcher this value comes from closure it comes from the outside world so we're we, we have some sort of like lines in the sand if you will between what's legal to go inside of meander pattern match and 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 what isn't with regard to closure expressions hmm I'm trying to think of that. So, and then of course we have, like I said, we have like the the zero or more operators, you know, the dot 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 or the dot dot in, which we borrowed from Racket. Racket has those. Uh, if you if you dig into any of the the Racket stuff, you'll see that their pattern matcher has that ellipsis kind of notation all over the place, which is really cool. Um, we allow for things like pattern matching on on maps with variable keys. So if like let's say you've got you know, a map and it has an ID key and you have, let's just to give us, you know, straw man example here, you have um, another key in there that has maybe like a, a list of, you know, users with, with IDs. You could draw a pattern match where, you know, you have a, you say the 
the ID, you know, you have an ID from the ID key, and then you want to go and filter out any in that list of things you want to pull out something that has the same ID. So you can reuse that variable there and you can, you know, it'll join in that way and, and find stuff. And if those things had been like, you know, keyed with, um, if it had been like a map where you have, it's sort of like a group by thing, like maybe you have, you know, a map from, you know, ID to something else. Well, then you can reuse that logic variable as the key in that pattern match to do the lookup. Right. So I think that would translate to like, you know, get the ID out of the map and then get in the map, you know, wherever the stuff <laughs> is, right? So you could just draw that out in, in Meander. And with maps, um, we're a little bit different from Core Match uh, in that, like, we don't actually require the map keys to be present, right? So we only require that the pattern match uh, is, uh, the value is what matches. And the reason why we went this way is because if you um, have something like, this is just a very simple case. Closure, you know, people use optional keys all the time, right? Mm. Imagine you had a map where it can have X, it can have Y, or it can have X and Y. Mm -hmm. If you have a strict matching situation, oh, that's going to feel really bad really quickly, you know? Right. So our solution is to say, look, if you care about the nilliness or the somethingness of of the key, right? Well, then you just put the constraint on the value. So you say ID, you know, it's got to have some value, you know? Because there's no way to tell the difference between a map that had the key, but had a nil value or didn't have the key without using something like contains or uh, a find or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. But and also in practice too, if you look at the way people kind of, deal with maps they're often using like keys destructuring or they'll use get without that third that argument you know the default right yeah <laughs> so i mean you know somebody might be thinking oh well you know that's that's not a great design decision but it just makes the ergonomics of using map pattern matching so much more you know lightweight and less maddening because i in the early days you know it would require that you had the key and that was just <laughs> yeah, it would drive you nuts you know um so um yeah i'm trying to think if there's any other things so uh, we also uh, you, know, you know if you look at the readme we also support what's called a search so you have match the pattern uh, or you have match which is the match macro and that just says give me one answer like if you you know find one answer exactly one answer and if it doesn't find an answer it's going to throw an error and say i can't find one we have two other match like macros that you can use called find and search. And I'll start with search. Uh, search allows you to find all of the solutions that would satisfy the pattern matches that you've, you've given. The, um, so this is kind of nice. If we go back to that you know, situation earlier where I, maybe I'm doing a join between one part of a map and some other thing inside of the map, there could be multiple you know, things that would match that. So you could think about maybe like an XML document where you maybe have some some keys that you're going to look up, you know, child or grandchild information. You know, you may have more than one solution in that instance. So you can use the search macro to find all of the possible solutions. And you can also use it to find other things too. Like if you wanted to, um, if you had different sort of situations, different things you wanted to get out of a single map, right? where maybe you just want to talk about the individual pieces of a single map, then you can use search and it'll find all of the, um, the possible answers that'll satisfy all those pattern matches for you. Yeah. Um, and then find is just a, a focused version of search, which just gives you the first one. And, you, and the only reason find exists is because it's, it's cheaper. It compiles to cheaper code than, than search does. So if you, if you say like first and then search on a thing, it's going to, it might go really slow or slower than, you know, you might want it to. If you use find, it's going to compile everything down to really tight, you know, reduces and stuff like that. So it doesn't waste more effort than it than it needs to. So there's quite a few differences from Core Match. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think you had asked about like Spectre too, right? So yeah. So Spectre's. I always it's interesting because I always get asked this question. They feel like, oh yeah, like like so so is this like Spectre? Is it how's it different? And and um. I would say it boils down to the goals, right? Like, so the goals of the Meander project are to sort of like deliver this set of tools for doing like really transparent kind of manipulations. And 
they're I'm not really I haven't been really focused on doing sort of deep, deeply kind of nested transformations, which is what Spectre is kind of good at, right? I think it markets itself as as a better you know get in or update in kind of a thing. So I think Spectre, the fancy way of talking about Spectre, it's like a lens library, right? It's for doing like lens type of stuff. If you've heard this term, lens from, mm-hmm. from the Haskell world, and um, so. The big difference there is goals, I would say, right? Because there are some places where Meander can do, you know, deeply kind of nested stuff. We just recently added something called a catamorphism. And what this allows you to do is it allows you to, to recursively pattern match. So you can, if you're digging into a map and you wanted to do some more pattern matching within the map, but you wanted to reuse sort of the pattern matching clauses that you already had to do that. Like if you have a tree-like thing, then you can use this this CATA operator to do that. So, you know, we can do some deeply nested types of stuff, but our focus is more on transparency. And I've worked a little bit with Spectre, and I'm, this isn't to say anything bad about Spectre, but if I look at a Spectre path, um, I believe that's what it's called, or a navigator, I forget. Yeah, It isn't by virtue of just looking at that thing obvious to me what's going on now someone might say oh like the same thing about meander right and that would be fair if you didn't know the syntax but once you get familiar with the syntax you can kind of pass these patterns around to people and they'll know exactly what they're doing whereas you can't really do that with the specter it's like back to that situation that i mentioned earlier where you we have to go and read the code again to figure out what's going on and given the sort of bi-directional kind of nature of these navigators, what does a path actually mean? I think that adds a bit of, of cognitive overhead. Again, you know, that's just my opinion that I would say maybe costs a little development time, right? I've kind of like, I work remotely uh, and I've been kind of jammed up on one of these things. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? You know, and maybe having to wait for someone to come back online to be like, hey, can you help me with this? And Really, the difference there is that you know we're again it's a goal difference, and it's uh, also uh, we don't really have a good answer for. I want to do a deeply nested transformation, and a little bit of that is my own stubbornness too, because I find that (laughs) deeply nested transformations are really hard to understand. You know, and if I'm on a team, like my goal is to if I like if I get hit by a bus today. My goal is to hopefully have left code behind that another developer is going to have an easy time picking up and maintaining an understanding. But if I try to do something where I'm like, you know, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to update this thing and I'm going to, you know, apply every functional like trick in the book. Well, why I just left somebody with something that they might have to spend half an hour on if there's a null pointer exception in there. Right. Mm. So, well, how did that happen? I mean, so I don't know if this happens often in Spectre, but I know it happens enough with stuff like update in where you get null pointer exceptions because somebody forgot to do something, right? You know, they called RE matches on null or something. Yeah. That, you know, it's just <laughs> like to me, the convenience of being able to have um, something that can do a very complex, deeply nested transform, it's not a value add to me, right? Because I want to reduce cognitive overhead. So, People are really good at, like I said earlier, recognizing data literals. Their people are great with shapes. The human mind is fantastic with shapes. We're terrible with names. It's easy to remember someone's face. It's all you know. You, you forget their name. That's just because <laughs> like, humans just we're not good at it, you know. But like, but, but we're fantastic at shapes, you know. And I think there's a there's actually a lot of sort of evidence to back this up. I've been reading this book called Mind Emotion by Barbara Tversky which talks about this and you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just like guilty of extreme confirmation bias. Um, but she talks about this kind of stuff in her book. And when you hear people say, Hey, you know, this pattern matching stuff, like it's really, it's really clear what's going on. I had this, I had this pile of stuff, right. That only maybe I could understand or, you know, m- me and the other guy that I paired with understood. Now we have something that is really, really clear what's going on. So that's the the difference in goals there is that yeah i want people <laughs> to be able to like show me like what they mean right and i want to be able to like conversely show other people what i mean right without having to tell the computer how to do it 
and you know closure's got all this fantastic stuff built into it it just there's no reason to me like that we we you know we shouldn't build on top of that and stop kind of like playing with the low level stuff you know let the computer do the hard work and we're the compiler's getting better too so you know right now maybe some things could go a little bit faster but it's something that will get there the code that you wrote today using stock closure to do these things will only get faster by virtue of you working on it. You know, if you have some kind of like, let's, um, one example would be like, maybe um, you're going to do some kind of nested lookup. And that nested lookup is based off of some piece of information that you get handed, but it's inside of a map. If you inside this, uh, some kind of like loop where you're using that information to look something up, you might accidentally shoot yourself in the foot and do that lookup, right? Every single time. Mm. So let's say like someone gives you a map and it's got like an ID key in it. And then you're going to use that information to look something else up. Like the example I gave earlier. Well, you could shoot yourself in the foot by doing that ID lookup every single time to look up in the nested thing. And that's going to, you know, if you have N number of things, you're going to do that in that lookup N number of times. And as far as I know, you know, maybe the JVM might optimize that. It's hard to say, but I don't know that it could, right? Like how, how could it know, right? That, that, oh, this is a pure thing. I can lift that out. So you're not paying that cost of that lookup every single time. Whereas with the pattern match, when you draw something, it's obvious, right? That that thing on top is, or as a sort of that nested thing depends on the thing above it. So you can arrange the code that gets compiled to do that lookup properly the first time. And you don't pay the cost for the nested, you know, so you don't do something silly like that. So you've, you've mentioned a few times this word draw, and I really like it. It kind of reminds me of the sort of Brett Victor style sort of understandable programming. Like you, we're no longer mimicking a computer in our minds to figure out like how this is going to run. We can look at it and see like the, you know, see a higher level. Yeah. Then the computer do, do the work and just describing. Is that sort of part of what you've been thinking about or is that, Am I way off track there um, with, that, with that thought? <laughs> I may have watched a, a Brett Victor talk or two mm-hmm. many, many years ago, but not directly. I, I mean, I don't think of Brett Victor as someone that like, you know, is motivating me to do this. I mean, a lot of, like I said earlier, I mean, a lot of this is motivated by my experience, but I mean, yeah, it's in that department, right? Like, right. it just seems... I don't know the right word to use for this, and I'm I'm not going to pick one for fear that someone <laughs> will get the wrong idea. But it just seems to me like, you know, we have the power, we have the technology to, um, you know, given the right information, produce pretty good code um, that we don't really have to think about. So, you know, why not capitalize on that? Like, do I really need to prove to myself that I can get in again, or I can get again, or I can ask if this thing is a string or if that thing is a vector. A great place where this sort of like shines. A really good example of this. Have you like I don't know if you've ever like done any kind of like written an interpreter or or you know a little compiler or something like this. But if you were to do this in closure, you're going to find that you're going to be asking a lot of questions. Right. You're going to be like, hey, are you a map? Or like, are, do you have this key in there? And, oh, I'm going to call this multi-method, and then I'm going to ask a million more questions. Like, just draw it out, right? So make the thing look like the thing that you care about. Then you don't have to think about all those questions, right? Because all the questions get are, are obvious, right? But you don't need to ask them. Mm. The, you can have the code, you know, you could generate the code to ask the questions, right? If I draw a list and say match on it, like it's... It's totally obvious what what that thing should be, but especially with lists. I mean, I mean, it just gets it just gets maddening. I mean, are, are you a, are you a list with with uh, three elements? You know, or is your first one uh, fn star? Is your second one, <laughs> you know, this? Like, it's just oh my gosh! Like, yeah, I don't. It's it's almost like it's almost sarcastic. <laughs> just I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I'd like to get to my programming language that I'm trying to uh, prototype now. You know, mm-hmm. and also too, I mean, so, um, you know, and if my tone's getting a little irritated here, it's because, you know, it is a little irritating if you've ever had to write this code, but it's also irritating if you've ever had to read this code, right? Yeah. Because you're like, man, like, what's going on inside this person's head? Like what, 
I have to figure this out, you know, because they didn't leave any documentation and it's not obvious, right, what it does or why it's even doing it until, you know, what do we do? We go, we get the REPL and we start putting stuff into the, you know, we start calling these functions directly. Why? Because we want to see the shape of stuff that comes out. Yeah. What shape of stuff do you take? What shape of stuff do you export? If I was just drawing pictures the whole time, I wouldn't even need to have the REPL for half of it. I could just look at some code up on GitHub and be like, oh, okay, you know, this person... He's he's got a list here, or she's got a a map here, you know that type of thing. Right? And I wouldn't I wouldn't have to do that in my mind. I wouldn't have to ask those questions in my mind. One other thing I want to point out too, and I didn't mention this earlier, is that with pattern matching, another great thing that you get, right? People people from the you know statically typed camp are always like, oh, you don't have your types, right? And I'm not here to rag on static typing. I like static typing. I enjoy Haskell. It's a fun language to program in. And I also agree with many of the arguments that are lobbied against dynamic typing. It's really frustrating when things break because I don't have a type system. But the beautiful thing about having a pattern matching system is that you kind of get the best of both worlds. So you get the dynamism of a dynamic language, right? Mm. So a pattern match can just have like, I can draw anything I want in there. And because it's a dynamic language, it'll just work. But the thing is, is the code that gets compiled is actually kind of doing all those those type checks for me. Right. So that I can know that on the right-hand side of that pattern match, I've actually made it through the thing that I, I meant it to get through. The check, all the, you know, I, I bound out the right things. I checked the, my types correctly. I'm guaranteed that on the right-hand side, pending a bug in the pattern matcher, which hopefully there are very, very many of those, <laughs> You're not going to end up with a nil somewhere way down the stack. Yeah, you're going to get what you think you got, right? Whereas with destructuring or, you know, if you're using the primitives to like get, get and all this stuff, you're, uh, you know, you're kind of on your own there. You have to do the checks yourself. And maybe that's necessary if you're really writing, you know, you want to, you really want to write some, some fast code and, and um, you don't want to pay the cost of any runtime checks. By the way, we've, we've been, sort of having some back-channel discussion of maybe at, even adding something like that where you could just say, look, uh, this is unsafe, you know, uh, don't type check, right? Hmm. So we could do that. But in terms of, you know, the, what I was saying there, right, the semantics of your code, of your program, are mirrored in the pattern match. So you can, you can what, what you meant to do is there. That's the, the big, uh, another one of these big sort of features, I would argue. And uh, like usually... If I have a bug in that code, then the bug is probably in the the functional code that I wrote, or the on the on the right hand side. Mm. And if I'm doing something like substitution, there's virtually never any bugs unless I'm doing function application, where again the bug is in the function, not in the pattern matching or in the substitution. So, you know, I think for a lot of people, myself included, that's a big advantage because you can have code that you can trust and you just don't have to, you know, it does what it says in the 10 to use a, um, you know, an old expression. So imagine you're, you know, working in a smallish, like five to 10 person closure development team and you're excited about Meander and you want to bring it in. What's kind of the tipping point where it's actually worth, like I imagine if it's like a two line closure function that you're swapping out for, you know, Meander plus this whole new, meander language like right maybe that's not enough benefit where where do you sort of feel like that tipping point is i agree if it's for a smallish thing maybe i mean there's no you know to give an example of my thinking here with tests right people if you had if you you know people want to clean up their test code or something like that which is i've never really understood that <laughs> it's like well if the, if the test's working like don't mess with it but if you come up with a better testing approach, right, then you want to start using that. So, I mean, for me, I would say, you know, usually the gnarly transformations or the gnarly kind of queries when you can show someone like, hey, you can you can knock this this query out like this. You could just draw this and it'll get it. The experience that I've usually had has been pretty good. People are like, yeah, like this is amazing. And that's that's not to be like, patting myself on the back or anything because like, <laughs> it kind of is right like i'm not i mean all i've done is like take this stuff and made closure do i think closure is the amazing part so it's got all this awesome stuff in here it's if it didn't have that i'd i don't know what i'd be doing but 
it wouldn't be fun. But uh, yeah, I mean, like the gnarly transformations are a good one where, where you're just like, man, I, I, you know, there's a lot going on here, and some of this code's been buggy, and and uh, you know, I wrote this code six months ago, I don't really have an idea what's going on. That's good code. That's a good target for trying something out. And sometimes people are really surprised by how I saw a nice message today. Someone was just like, yeah, I had this complicated logic and it just cleaned it up. And and that's a nice feeling. But for the smaller stuff, I mean, even if, you know, even if it's a, if, if it's a small thing, it's not necessarily a bad idea for the reasons that I mentioned before, which is you get some guarantees about that function or that instance where you're using the pattern matcher, right? You get all the properties that I asserted you get previously. But definitely the gnarly ones, yeah. If you have some gnarly transformations, or if you have some like relational type of stuff where you're using, you know, fragments of one thing to look up, you know, something else, or if you're doing any kind of like aggregation where the the shape of the thing that you're aggregating is kind of relevant, or the sorry, the shapes of thing that you're trying to get the items out, you know, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good one because it what's gonna like gonna give you is it's going to give you the transparency to see the program for what it's doing, you know, and hopefully it's as fast, give or take, right? It could cost you or it could actually not cost you. It just depends. You know, sometimes I've, I've converted my own sort of like logic over to it and been surprised that the performance actually got better. Hmm. So that's been kind of a nice, uh, a nice feature. So yeah, I, I would say for, for gnarly stuff, it's a, it's a good tipping point. Um, another tipping point, which, you know, would, I guess to me uh, that I already feel exists outright is just the ability to communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. If you have a, um, I don't know if you've seen, noticed this property of regular expression, but if you pick up regular expression, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I know. Now you got two problems, right? That old joke. Okay. Um, (laughs) but, but hear me out. You, you, you probably speak regular expression. You know mm-hmm. the, yeah. the the Python, yeah. the self-proclaimed Python programmer or Ruby programmer or whoever programmer they know they know regular expression. We can we can pick up a you know a EBNF grammar or something like that, and you know kind of get a feel for what's going on. We understand what plus and star and the the round braces and character sets and all this stuff means, right? So to me, this is really interesting because like I've never met too many people who are maybe like senior who would get a regular expression and be like, what does this thing do? Right. It's if you know, regular expression, which if you've been in the industry for a long time, it's pretty easy to figure out what that thing does. And unless it's one of these insane, (laughs) (laughs) is this really an email? Right. Like that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, Yeah. (laughs) you know, you know what it means. And that to me is a really nice thing. Um, And it's not just a property of, of regular expression, but it's a property of, many DSLs where you've got a very specific small language for talking about a doing a certain behavior, right? And the win is that you only need to know, you know, the handful of, of things to kind of like explain what it does. And then off you go, you're done. With general purpose programming languages, you don't have that luxury, right? The semantics are ad hoc. They're whatever the person programmed. Mm. So that, and that's like, that's why it's hard to understand programs and software because it's designed to solve problems generally. So the more general you get, the harder it's going to be to understand what something is doing. Conversely, the more specific you get, the easier it'll be to understand what it's doing. Because it's, you know, if we just had, we me give you a straw, an example, if I just had mathematics, if it's just arithmetic, right? Just a multiplication and arithmetic division, you know, and subtraction, right? There's a DSL for for doing arithmetic there. That's pretty easy to understand. But like, okay, well, you know, now if I start throwing in other stuff, it gets more complex, right? Every time I add something new, it gets more complex. And uh, now if I throw in more, more data types, well, now I don't have to, there's just strings that plus can apply to, or sorry, numbers that plus can apply to, but it can apply to, you know, strings as well, because this is Ruby or JavaScript or, or something <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, the, the difficulty of understanding what something does at face value kind of goes up. Yeah. What's interesting about that is like someone, someone might say, well, you know, you're not really, you know, you know, big picture things. You're not really trying to look at a whole program and be like, what does this whole thing do? You can't just look at that and, you know, know what it does. A lot of times you're looking at things in the small. You're trying to figure out what a single function does or maybe two or three functions. What do they do? How do they interact with each other? 
you know. So even for a small team, you know, I would assert that having that syntax on your side, right? It's a common language, right? Mm. Whereas, you know, if you've got five closure developers, you've got like five people who have different opinions on, you know, how the <laughs> NS macro should be written or who when should you thread, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't want to think about that stuff. I don't like want to think about like, well, I, you know, I should be using double th- the double thread here or the single thread here because, you know, my rules, yeah. my rules apply, right? Um, or, you know, if I'm writing some like code, you know, which which order should I go in? Should I let everything out or should I at the top or should I let it out when I need it? It's uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, help you if you, you know, are on a team where people like to go and, and argue about this kind of stuff in a pull request, you know, um, that's just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's maddening. Like, you know, you ask someone to, they call an RE matches. This is my favorite. I love to use this example all the time because I've seen RE matches blow up so many times. I <laughs> almost expect it to happen, but like, you know, I always ask people when they call RE matches on something I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm just kind of reading the code here and that thing, that value came from a map lookup. That map, we got that off the wire. Why don't we just put a string check here? <laughs> just to be on the safe side, <laughs> just in case, right? Like, what happens if it's in a string? Mm-hmm. Do we really want the whole request to blow up? Like, you know, I don't want to go into Raven or Sentry or whatever it is and be like, you know, all right, I got like 500 RE matches area here because something wacky happened last night. I just, you know... If you're using the pattern matching syntax and you've got the the, the RE operator, it's going to do that check for you, and like you can just rest assured that it's going to do the check for you. And then if you actually had a string that matched the pattern, then it works. So those kinds of benefits, I mean, I think they're good for teams small and large because closure does give you lots of of different ways to do things, right? And I think that's great for one or two people maybe it's a very very powerful thing you can get a lot of work done with just two guys or two gals or a guy and a gal you know but you you can get a lot done with just the stock stuff but that might come at a cost so having that dsl having that syntax that's going to help you be able to have a way of talking about data query arbitrary data query in a way that's convenient safe and the language is shared right and you don't have to pick a fight hopefully you don't have to <laughs> hopefully you don't have to the, i was trying to design it to where that that social problem might not exist but there might be one or two different ways you have to fight once to use it yeah exactly it was one time right right but yeah yeah so um i was trying to think of social problems too which i would just to anyone that's still listening i would say that you know if you're in the business of of designing a library or something like or a, a language anyways like Meander's kind of doing, to consider the social problems that you might be able to address via your language. Because the time that's wasted in GitHub or in chat rooms, you know, over like the things that I just described, it, you know, when to use certain things or when to do certain checks, you know, that's real time that really does get waste, wasted and costs startups real money, um, you know, because <laughs> people, get, people get mad, right? <laughs> check out for the day that you're angry or something, you know, it happens. So it's something worth thinking about, right? There's more to this story than just data query, right? There's, there's, there's these other considerations too for, you know, you as a, as a human being and your teammates as human beings as well. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a humanitarian effort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So for the last month and a half, two months or so, you've been working on Meander funded by Closures Together, which was a project we were you know, really excited about and happy to fund. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about what sort of you've been working on recently, what's sort of you know, on the cards for the rest of the, you know, the, the time you've got allotted? Yeah. Um, so we, um, or I, um, and I've had a little help from Jimmy, but... Uh, Jimmy Miller, who's who gave a talk about Meander at at Strangely, um, he's kind of hopped in. Yeah. So there's been a lot of a lot of motivating uh, factors here to to greatly improve stuff. But the big ones are uh, so um, you know if you if you're if you're new to the project, you, you'll show up and 
you'll see it, it says currently it says meander epsilon, but before that it was delta, and before that it was gamma and beta and alpha and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the way the project's designed is you know with an eye towards kind of what Rich was was talking about, where we're semantic versioning sort of encourages that place oriented kind of thinking, but with library, like right. So it's like you know you have if you can if you want to imagine your you know your your artifact as being an atom. You know, semantic versioning is effectively allowing you to swap in some other type that just breaks your whole program. So you know his idea is just so well, let's just change the name, right? And yep. you know if I want to play a new game, then let's do that. And uh, I just want to give a hat tip to Rich. Like this has worked out. Like it's been completely liberating for me to work this way because I when you have something that has syntax, you don't have to you have to think about like oh am I going to break somebody. Now I don't have to think about some, uh, breaking somebody. I can just safely go, well, uh, this could break somebody, so I, maybe I should just make a new name for the thing and <laughs> go play over there. It's nice. It really is. If you're a library author, it's a very liberating thing. I don't know if it's left anyone out in the cold yet, but you know, send me all your hate mail if so. But it's, it allows you to sort of innovate. So now I can answer the question you actually asked. So, like I said, uh, when I applied for the funding, I was I was going to be focusing on this next arm of the project, which is called Epsilon. And with Epsilon, the big changes from Delta to Epsilon were that we have, so we have these pattern matching operators, like and and or, these sort of like match this and this and this or that type of thing. But prior to Epsilon, those were not namespaced. So you'd have to quote them in the pattern match. And for some people trying things out, this was kind of annoying. And I also kind of found it annoying too, because if I wanted to extend the system, I'd have to like do weird stuff. And I didn't, I didn't like that. So one of the big things that I did for the Epsilon branch was to set up a proper system for having these operators being namespaced. Mm-hmm. And also, um, they, so they also work for the different phases. So if you're pattern matching them, there's operators that will fire when you're pattern matching if you've registered them via the the def syntax macro. That's that's a new thing. And then there's also for the substitution phase. So in other words, there's some operators that make sense in pattern matching, like and match this and that, but don't make sense or don't have an analog in substitution, or at least they don't yet. I'm still trying to get that wrap my head around that. Like, what does or how does or make sense? Do you just pick one? And plug it in, right? It doesn't. It's not clear to me what the semantics of that should be. But that's the big one. So now all of the operators are namespaced, and apart from just a few things that are like the not- some notation stuff, the pattern matcher is totally symbolic. So whatever you you draw anything, and it's going to match literally that. So so that's huge. And and also we ask now have a pretty nice way of of extending it, which gives us the ability to try out some new things that we couldn't before. So that's been huge. Um, that took a, a, quite a bit of, of plumbing and, and thinking about, but we have that. We have also some nice improvements to, to pattern matching. So, for example, if you had a pattern where you had variable keys, right? So you've got you know, the keys A, B, and C. You don't know what they are. But A has some value, B has some value, and C has some value, and maybe maybe they're even related to each other. They have they have logic variables that run across them. This would cost you a lot a couple of weeks ago, so it mm. it would kind of idiotically permute the key, you know, permute the map and try to like pick the ones because hash maps they don't have a, an order. They call it, they don't have an inductive order, right? So there's no logical ordering for maps. So that's hence the the permutation. But I ended up figuring out that, oh, well, we, um, we have another way that we could take those patterns and rewrite them such that th- that cost goes away. We don't have to permute anymore. And that led to some dramatic performance imp- improvements. I mean, not anyone listening is probably will like, duh, um, <laughs> permutation's <laughs> expensive, bro. Like, and, and it's true. So, but that was huge because uh, I think uh, some people might have you know, timed that and been like, wow, this is really... And in fact, someone came and complained. They were like, hey, this is, I have a batch job that's running and this is going slow. What's going on? So n- now that works about as fast as it would as if, if you, I'm probably at, you know, if not faster than if you would have written it by hand because of the joins and certainly in less code. And it turns out that that performance improvement also affected sets as well because sets and maps kind of use some of the same 
style of uh, searching under under the hood. We added the ampersand operator, this this ampersand mm-hmm. uh, operator to uh, lists and vectors, so you can talk about the rest of uh, of a vector or a sequence like you would in Clojure. But it preserves the type. So if I had a vector one, two, three, ampersand, you know, the logic variable x. If I get a vector that starts with one, two, three, the rest of that vector will be put into into x. And you can also do other things too, like you can continue to apply pattern matching against the ampersand because it's a it's a the slice of the vector that doesn't include the first part. So you can keep you can keep going into it. So that's kind of cool for optional stuff, which is I was going to mention here in a minute. That's probably going to be on the way. People will often say like, well, hey, how do I often, you know, how do I say that this thing is optional, like in regex, right? A, you know, B question type of thing. So that's Mm -hmm. coming. We can, we're going to add that. You can also do that with uh, maps and sets. So with uh, hash maps, you put an ampersand and it will match the slice of the map that doesn't include the rest of the stuff that you, you know, like if you had a, you know, A1, B2 and ampersand, you know, your pattern that pattern matching would continue on the slice of the map that didn't include A and B. And this is really useful for recursive types of pattern matching on maps, which we also support. Um, I didn't mention that earlier. It's another thing that we have that, that matches. And how we have this with operator, which allows you to like have like patterns that refer to themselves. So you get these recursive patterns. We added the, the, the kata operator, which I mentioned earlier, which allows you to recursively pattern match on the whole thing. So all of your clauses, you can recursively pattern match a nested value on the whole entire thing, which is like actually pretty mind blowing because you know we couldn't do before when we wanted to do stuff like that we'd actually have to manually call the function sort of in line or or on the right hand side or something, and and now we don't have to. But where it was particularly mind blowing is that you know, you remember earlier when I was talking about the search operator, which gives you like a sequence of all the possible matches. Because of the the way the underlying sort of like architecture is is designed, when we added this, search actually didn't have to change at all. So it doesn't need to like flatten out nested streams or anything weird like that. You can just call search and you can call the kata operator. It'll do the recursive search, but your stream will come out, your stream of values will still come out nice and flat, which was just like, oh, this is so cool because you can do crazy stuff like we have a macro called rewrite, which is just a fancy convenience for pattern matching and substitution. But we have another one called rewrites, which basically is the search version of this. So you could call rewrites on something and you could get effectively get out a search of all the possible ways that you could transform a value, which is pretty, like, it's not like immediately practical, but still it's pretty mind-bending and cool that you can you can do this. So this would be probably more interesting to someone messing with like programming languages where they might want to see sort of like what the world would look like with a little ambiguity sprinkled in, like how would the program evaluate if I were more ambiguous about how I chose my evaluation, right? So there's that. We've added some documentation, quite a bit of documentation. No, I keep saying we because I, I kind of like divorce myself from like, I don't see myself as sort of like the owner of this. I actually, like this is sort of a contribution. So um, I keep using this word we, but so documentation's improved, and it's going to continue to improve. I've got a specification of the grammar uh, for the language for the pattern matching side, and probably the substitution side coming out very soon. I'm trying to think if there was anything else I, I might have missed. Oh, grouping. That's also going to be a thing. So yeah, sometimes, you know, just like in regular expression, you want to talk about grouping a subsequence. The way that the sort of subsequence stuff is set up now is you can't really do that, so that's going to be added probably here within the month or so. And then, of course, you know, bug fixes and stuff. Long term, um, I've been experimenting with a different compilation strategy. Um, so right now, we're using, for pattern matching, we're using the typical, or it's probably considered typical in the pattern matching community, um, matrix-style pattern matching, where, you know, you take your, your patterns and you break them into a matrix, and, you know, you compile the columns of the matrix and you sort of prioritize based off of some kind of cost function for how much it would cost to, you know, pattern match a particular column, uh, you know, with an eye towards picking the columns that are the cheapest, right? But uh, because the pattern matcher shares a lot of similar properties to regular expressions with the zero and more kind of stuff, and then also in some of the ways that it, uh, there's some also like searching 
bits in there. Um, and now we have uh, like recursive stuff involved as well. Um, I've been looking at maybe, you know, switching to a more of a, a graph based approach to where, you know, all the patterns and their actions are kind of put into a graph. And then we do some optimizing of the pattern match using the graph instead of the matrices and trees approach, which is what we currently use now. For certain patterns, those can lead to dramatic speedups because we can benefit from all of the sort of crazy optimizations you can do with NFA-like things. And though some of those optimizations are just frankly hard to do with the formats that we have now. So we have an intermediate format before that we used before we compiled to Clojure. It's just a bit difficult to find the kinds of optimizations that we could probably find more easily with the graph. But the downside of these kinds of explorations is you really don't know how much better you can do and where until you actually, you know, finish writing the whole damn thing. <laughs> so you just get, I mean, it could be something where you're like, well, yeah, it's like, you know, it's a bit faster, but maybe you don't know something about the JVM or you don't know something about JavaScript and mm. just like, you know, maybe it wasn't worth it at all to do it. So yeah, tons of stuff. Oh, and the substitution is not really what people seem to be showing up for. I think people really like the the pattern matching part of it, but the pattern substitution part is really cool as well. I kind of a rewrite junkie. I almost, you know, strictly use rewrite because that's what that was my goal. So that's where I hang out. <laughs> um, but making it go much, much faster. So if you want to look at sort of um, a partial example of how you can use sort of rewriting, if you, if you, you know, I, and whoever's listening, feel free to IM me. I can give you some, give you a line number or something, but. The substitution compiler is pretty cool in that it actually has, um, it uses the pattern matcher to do part of its work. And what it does is it looks at the code that it generates and it looks for closure identities. And then it sort of rewrites the code against those closure identities to strip away all kinds of useless work. So I can give you an example, real simple one. If you had like a let that let out a persistent or sorry, a transient value. And then the last result of that let was a call to persistent on it. Then you can uh, basically, if you're not using that binding anywhere, which the code that I'm generating doesn't use that binding anywhere, it just does it for convenience, then it just gets rid of the binding, you know? And then, you know, if there's any kind of other code around that, that also just, it just plays right into it. So it's kind of cool. So for anyone listening, this might be a fun project to try at home. Maybe try taking some closure code and looking at, you know, identities. Uh, and by what I mean by identity is like, given some code and some other code, you know, you can replace one with the other safely, right? By, by either moving arguments around or getting rid of arguments or, or something like that, doing substitution effectively. So you might be able to like do sort of a closure kind of like whole program optimization type of thing just by rewriting up a, a program that way just is sort of a fun fun experiment but i dog food it in the substitution compiler for sure and it makes a huge difference in terms of the amount of code that gets generated and how fast that code actually executes because it doesn't waste you know any with uh, extra kinds of like calls to um you know lists or vectors or what have you it just you know yeah so those those are some of the big ones i'm sure i'm sure there's more but those are the big ones so uh, namespacing operators, uh, faster substitution, and faster pattern matching. Awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to say thanks to you know, Closures Together sponsors and members who you know, made were able to you know, help us help us fund this project. Uh, and there's a few in particular which have been you know, really big supporters. Uh, we've got Pitch, who's building presentation software for individuals and teams. Newbank is the leading financial tech company in Latin America. Juxt is a consulting company that delivers software applications and platforms using Clojure. There's Matosin, who's the first Finnish software house specializing in Clojure. Adgoji is a media agency that have built their real-time bidding platform using Clojure. And Funding Circle connects small businesses who want to borrow with investors who want to lend in the UK, US, Germany, and the Netherlands, and they use Clojure to build their platform as well. NextJournal is a tool that improves data-driven research. Their notebooks make results and methods reproducible and foster model-driven debate. There's hundreds more members, developer members and company members who 
all have you know contributed and helped fund your work and the work of other projects so i want to say thanks to you know, everyone who was involved because you know we couldn't have couldn't have done it without without all of their support yeah absolutely and i mean to all of those folks uh you know if there's any anything i can do or is anything that those folks want to see i mean just let me know this is uh this is probably going to be my my life's work for <laughs> for quite a while it's it's um <laughs> there's a lot of work to do so but i'm i'm infinitely appreciative for the grant money it's i was stunned and i'm just completely grateful um, i should just say that so another project that you've been involved in and worked on you know earlier in your closure career and it's, you know still now is a project called garden which is a way of creating css in closure and closure script do you want to talk a little bit about you know what that is and uh, you know what's what's happening with it at the moment yeah it was uh, so garden was yeah probably one of my first um you know really serious closure projects that uh got a good bit of attention people seem to enjoy it um i honestly owe james reeves transitively to whoever else that maybe inspired james reeves to do hiccup but I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. Like I should just, uh, I should just take this and and make it do CSS. So that's what I did. I tried to borrow the borrow the same spirit and ideas. At the time, I was working for a newspaper, and I was like one of the only developers there. Actually, I was the only developer there, which is a big reason that I switched to Closure because I was just tearing my hair out maintaining Ruby and PHP and SAS. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I know CSS well enough to write my own stuff and. So I did. And yeah, that's how Garden was born. So recently, I have been kind of looking for some help. I started working on another version of the project, version 2.0. And and, and kind of going back to what I said, uh, the hat tip to, to Rich earlier with the, the versioning stuff, I actually was going to make a 2.0 and then realized that, oh, Rich was right. This is a bad idea. You know, now what do I do? And I just kind of, I kind of stalled out. So I did all this work on 2.0 and uh, I didn't, I didn't release it because I didn't know how to, you know, I didn't know how to, to, to take mm. Rich's information and, and then integrate it, you know, fast forward a few years and I started working on Meander and, you know, I saw what spec was doing, by the way, I don't know why they used alpha two, a beta, just the troll them betas, second letter <laughs> of the Greek alphabet, not alpha two, uh, just want to throw that out there. Uh, but, um, you know, in seriousness, yeah, this is, like I said earlier, it's a, it's a great strategy. And someone was asking about like what was going on with the project not long ago. And I was like, oh, well, you know, the whole thing stalled out because of this 2.0 issue, but you know, we have an answer for this. We'll just make a new namespace and go, call it good. <laughs> so um, anyways, I, I was looking around for, for some some help on it because I've been working on Meander. And, and just to be honest with, with everyone, it's really hard for me to do. I have a family. And so doing like both is really, really hard. So I would love more help on it. But there's, I think someone from the, I don't know if he's the reframe maintainer, Sean Mahood. I don't I hope I didn't picture his name. I don't think he's a maintainer, but he's definitely involved in reframe. Yeah, he's. I know he's like, contributed quite a, a bit to it. Um, yeah. But, but anyways, uh, you know, he had expressed some interest, and I said, hey, uh, you know, if you want, like, I have this 2.0 branch. I need everything moved moved over to a new namespace. We we we're going to use the Greek alphabet now. So he <laughs> went and, or not the Greek, the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, he went and, you know, took everything <laughs> that I did and put an LF on it. And uh, yeah, so we're we should be releasing a Garden LF pretty soon and continuing to iterate on the project from there um there's a i think the only thing holding it back right now might be honestly updating the readme and some of the docs uh those are always the killers right and i think there might be a test or two broken but other than that i i think it's it's probably ready to go so the project's not going to be dead anymore which i'm super excited about i'm glad that you know, really grateful to Sean for for doing that. Usually, people say, "Oh, you know, I, I want to help you." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> please." <laughs> Some stressed out open source software maintainer, help me, please. And uh, you know, you hand them the torch and you hope they run with it. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But Sean did, and like within a week, he was like, "Yeah, I'm done." You know, sorry it took me so long. And I'm like, "Man, I'm just happy <laughs> you did it at all. This is awesome." You know, so. Yeah, so that's where that is. that's where that project is. And um, you know, if I had made it abundantly clear, please jump in if you want to support. I, I, I use all the help I can get, and I would really love more folks in the community who are actually using it daily to get involved and you, you know with the project. 
I think the architecture for for the this 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 next iteration is a little bit easier to understand. You know, the first version of Garden suffers from all the hallmark like holy cow, I can do everything enclosure in in one line kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when I some of that code, I'm like, I can't even read this. Um, so, uh, but the, but the, there's been a lot more thought in the in the in this other iteration. So uh, hopefully, it'll be easier for people to people to jump in and and, uh, and help with it. Nice. Uh, yeah, I've used Garden in the past, and yeah, it's it's a great project. So yeah, thank you for for your work on it. It's very helpful. Well, I'm glad. I, I I'm always happy to hear people that you know enjoy it, and uh, you know, again, like, like I said, if folks want to see it improve, then please, it's their library. You know, they're using it. They, they send me your hate mail or something, <laughs> <laughs> or a patch, <laughs> probably the latter. Yeah. And so people can also watch, as you said, Jimmy Miller has been working and helping you on Meander, and he gave a talk at Strange Loop just a week or two or three ago about Meander, uh, so people can watch that for right. yeah for more background on you know, what it is and how it works. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Jimmy's a better he's a better speaker. He is he stays on topic. He doesn't ramble like this guy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about uh, Meander. I really like. You know, the goal of the repo was to dive into like the guts of programs and get into technical details. So, you know, I feel like we've definitely done that here. This has been a very deep dive. So thanks for your time and thanks for your work on all the things you've done. Thanks for having me, Daniel.